a well-known activist um, put out a tweet this past week. I know some of you, perhaps many of you, already know what this tweet is. This is what the tweet said. Yes, I think the statues of the white European they claim is Jesus should also come down. They are a form of white supremacy. Always have been. In the Bible, when the family of Jesus wanted to hide and blend in, guess where they went? Egypt, not Denmark. Tear them down. Perhaps you heard of that tweet or read it. But this is a a prominent activist who made these comments. And unfortunately, there are many people who think that way. And I wouldn't be surprised if there are not just a few who think that way, who hold power in our nation. They just don't want to make it publicly known because it's not politically to their advantage to make it known at this particular time. Here we see an individual uh, taking what's going on in our nation, and the, we all are aware of what's going on in the, the statues and the monuments that are being defaced and torn down. As a result, many say, of George Floyd's death. And this person here who put out this tweet is saying that having these statues of Jesus depicted as a European individual is not just because it's racist. And so he's seeking racial justice. He's seeking justice is what he wants. And it's interesting to me that in order to seek justice, he's going to tear down and wants to tear down the statue of an individual who's the most just person that ever lived. I don't understand that. Do you? Is it really because of social justice? Is it really? Is that why you want these statues torn down? Or is it something bigger and something deeper than just simply tearing down Jesus because he doesn't look the way he thinks that Jesus should look? I think it's a bigger, more deeper issue than that. Of course, the enemy is at work in our world, and he will use good causes to further his own agenda in our world. He does it all the time. Sex is a good gift from Almighty God, is it not? But yet, we use it in ways that God never intended it. Social justice is something that we should all seek. But the enemy could take social justice, an issue that is we should all be concerned about as believers, and use it for uh, an end that is not in necessarily consistent with God's will. That God wants justice is clear. Not only does he want justice, but the way justice is brought about is also very important, Right? Doesn't God also, isn't God also concerned about how we go about seeking justice? It's true. 
I know that because way back in the book of Exodus, I remember preaching a sermon on this in Exodus chapter 2. It was on February the 9th. And the sermon was titled, uh, Doing God's Work, God's Way. And God was very well aware of the injustice that was going on among his people who were enslaved in Egypt. They were being mistreated and abused. And so he wanted to raise up an individual to deliver them from their oppression, from their abuse, from their injustice. And that individual was Moses. And what does Moses do when he looks upon the people, his own countrymen? He looks upon the people and he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. That's what he sees. He sees an injustice. And when he sees the injustice, he got so angry with what he saw, he decided to kill the Egyptian. That was his way of bringing about social justice. Kill the person who did the wrong. So he's using violence to bring about justice. That revealed that Moses, that act, revealed that Moses was immature. He was spiritually immature. And God knew he was spiritually immature because his actions demonstrated it. And so God knew he couldn't use that person at that particular time. So what does he do? He sends him way out to Midian to grow up. So they can call him back and have Moses lead the people of Egypt, people of Israel out of Egypt in his own way. Now, people, we see injustice all the time. We saw what happened to George Floyd, and there's outrage, and there should be. But how do we respond to such an injustice? How should we respond to such an injustice? If we react like Moses, Many have reacted like Moses. They saw the injustice, and what do they do? They burn down buildings and tear down statues. Is that the right way to go about bringing justice into the world? Is that the way to do it? It only simply shows that they're immature. When people do such things, whoever they may be, and for whatever reason, it is clearly an example of spiritual immaturity. And God does not want his people to bring about justice and righteousness in this world by means of violence. We should know that. But yet there are many who will use violence and say, you know what? Hey, Jesus Christ was the most radical revolutionary to ever live. And they support their actions because Jesus was a revolutionary. Really. Not a violent one. When Jesus was going to be arrested, what happened when he was arrested? Peter took a sword, cut off Malchus's ear, and Jesus said, no. You're not going to use, you're not going to advance my kingdom by means of violence. You're not going to seek out justice and trying to get these guys who are arresting me in your own way. This is the world in which we live. We should be angry when we see an injustice. But how we respond matters. And obviously tearing down statues on property that does not belong to any of us is not the right way to do it. And that's clear. 
It's a sign of spiritual immaturity, just like Moses. So why do I bring all this up? Why does this even matter? I think what we see in our world is uh, clearly the enemy of our souls at work. His purpose, and Jesus is his arch rival. We saw in the book of Esther that Mordecai and Haman were arch rivals. And we also saw that Mordecai foreshadows Jesus, Haman, Satan, arch rivals. And we saw their interaction with each other in the book of Esther. Now, if the enemy is at work in this world, his goal is to eliminate and assault the church. If the enemy wants worship, then the church has to be dealt with because we know the church is not going to worship the enemy of our souls. So at some point, there's going to have to be an assault on the church. And one of the ways that's going to be expressed or one way that the enemy will attempt to assault the church is to take away the freedom of speech. Silence the church's voice. This was done at the very beginning of the church's existence after Jesus ascended into heaven and he told the disciples to go and make disciples of all nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Go. And so they do so. And how long does it take before the establishment tells them, do not speak in the name of Jesus. Don't use his name. Elimination of freedom of speech. Right at the very beginning. And they continued. They gathered together. Right? And they prayed for boldness. And that's what they did. They continued to pray in Jesus' name. And preach in Jesus' name only to be thrown in prison. Not only did they lose their freedom of speech, they lost their freedom, period. But they didn't care. They continued preaching, and they got beaten while they were there in prison. And when they got out, they rejoiced because why? They had the privilege of being of suffering because of what they were doing for Jesus. They were suffering for Jesus' sake and for his name. Are we heading in that direction in our nation today? Are we coming to a place where what I'm doing right now may be affected because of laws that may limit our speech in this nation? Again, I bring this up because it appears that's where we're heading. We are in the midst of spiritual conflict, spiritual warfare. And the intensity and the degree to which we may not have experienced yet in our lifetime, the intensity of this spiritual conflict that's being played out in this world is going to be extremely intense. That's where we're going as a nation, as a church. We need to be aware of that. And again, I bring this up because when we come to Esther chapter 9, we come to the conflict between God's people and their enemies. There's a conflict. 
We saw last week that Mordecai's decree had reversed the curse of Haman's decree. And we're living in a time where Jesus' death on the cross has reversed the curse, right? But that doesn't mean the battle's over. It means we're in the midst of a battle. Just because the reverse, the curse has been reversed doesn't mean there's no conflict. So too with the book of Esther in chapter 9. There is a conflict. The curse has been reversed, but now there's conflict. And we're going to see in just five verses that they were successful in their conflict against their enemy. The Jewish people were. God's covenant people were successful in their conflict with the enemy. And the author only gives us just a summary explanation of how they were successful. He doesn't go into great detail. He doesn't spend a lot of time on it. Probably because since the curse has been reversed, the victory is inevitable. And so it is with the church. We are victorious, but there's still a battle to be fought. And since we are entering into a time of such great spiritual conflict... What must a church do to be successful in time of great spiritual warfare? What must a church do? Not only as individual Christians, but as a body. And I think the first five, five verses, the author has given us an example of what the church must do in the midst of intense spiritual conflict. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. Again, the conflict begins. This is the question. How were God's covenant people able to experience victory and success over their enemies? How were they able to do that? Number one, they were able to do so because they had assembled together within their local communities. That's how they were able to be victorious. They, were be, they assembled together within their local communities. Verses 1 and 2. Now, in the 12th month, that is the month of Adar, which is our February, March, on the 13th day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. On the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred in that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. The Jews gathered together in their cities throughout all of the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could withstand them because the fear of them fell upon all the people. Now, In verse 15 and in verse 16, you don't have to change the screen. He says this, the author in verse 15 says this, And the Jews who were in Susa gathered together again on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men of Susa. And in verse 16, we read, The remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives and killed 75,000 of their enemies. Evidently, every time there was a conflict, the Jews had assembled together and gathered together. There was obviously a reason for them doing so. Why would they do that? A rope is an essential tool 
with which all of us are familiar. Ropes are made from strands of fabric, plants, wire, or other materials that are each individually twisted or braided together. Interestingly, substances that may be quite unexceptional can be woven together and become exceptionally strong. Thus, effectively connecting and binding ordinary materials can produce an extraordinary tool. Just as a rope obtains its strength from many intertwined individual strands, so the church can obtain its strength from many intertwined individual Christians who may be unexceptional on their own, but woven together through their their gathering and assembling becomes an extraordinary tool that the master can use in defeating his enemy in times of spiritual conflict. Perhaps why this is the author says in Ecclesiastes 4.12, Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. The church united cannot be defeated because we are bound together in one baptism, in one faith, in one Lord, Jesus Christ. An illustration. A few winters ago, a man by the name of uh, a man by the name of Carl G. Connor writes, "A few winters ago, heavy snows hit North Carolina. Following a wet six-inch snowfall, it was interesting to see the effect along Interstate 40. Next to the highway stood several large groves of tall, young pine trees. The branches were bowed down with heavy snow so low that the branches from one tree were often leaning against the trunk or branches of another. Did you ever see that here in South Dakota? We see that with ice too, right? Where trees stood alone, however, the effect of the heavy snow was different. The branches had become heavier, but without other trees to lean against, the branches snapped. They lay on the ground, dark and alone on the cold snow. When the storms of life hit, we need to be standing close to other Christians. The closer we stand, the more we will be able to hold up and stand. And that is true, even in times of spiritual conflict. When tough get going, the church must assemble because that's where we're going to draw our strength from. Like the trees that hold each other up when they're bowed down with the weight that is on them. So it is with you and me. The spiritual conflicts that we face as individuals and as a church, we will only overcome them when we are able and allowed to come together and assemble. So we must not be surprised that if a strategy down the road, the enemy employs a scenario where the church can no longer assemble. Because he knows that he can't defeat the church when the church is one and unified. So we must be able to assemble. It's very important. It's what allowed the Jews in Esther's time to have victory in the midst of spiritual conflict. And the same is true with the church of Jesus Christ. Secondly, God's covenant people were able to experience victory and success over their enemies because they used their swords in combat. Interesting. Verses 3 through 5. 
and all the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and all those doing the king's work, helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's palace, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For this man, Mordecai, became increasingly prominent. Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. It is interesting that the officials of the provinces, the satraps and the governors, and all those who were doing the king's work were initially on the side of Haman when he issued his decree. And now that they see Mordecai's in power, they're going to flip and they're going to help the Jews because of the position and the prominence of Mordecai. He holds power, so they're going to go on the side of those who have all the power. And as a result of that, the Jews are equipped with swords. Where did they get swords from? They live in the Persian Empire, in a land that's not their home. What were they doing with swords? It's not like Jewish families had swords on their person. It was provided for them by those who were in power because of Mordecai's decree and because of Mordecai's power. And because they wielded their swords and they used them, they were able to have victory over their enemy. Now, we are followers of Jesus Christ who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Has he not? And he has equipped his people with swords. He has. Of course, I'm not talking about the literal sword or a dagger, but he has equipped his people with a sword. Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God, the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than what? Any two-edged sword, right? So God's people are to carry the word of God as a sword to combat that any idea that is contrary to the purpose and plan of Jesus, right? Second Corinthians chapter 10 says, says this, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds and casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So you do battle with the word of God and using it skillfully against those who have ideas like this activist who's against Jesus And we have to wage and use that sword skillfully. It's interesting that in the book of Acts, after Jesus had ascended and the Spirit of God falls upon the disciples, Jesus gives this, uh, Jesus, Peter gives this great sermon. And after Peter had given his sermon, this is the response of the people. It says, when they, the people, heard Peter's sermon, it says that they were cut to the heart. Peter gave a sermon. He used the word of God, and it was piercing. 
and it cut to the heart. It goes right to the heart of a person and cuts, not to, to wound, to, to bring down and destroy, but to heal. And when we use God's word skillfully in spiritual conflict, we can have victory over the enemy and what he's trying to accomplish in this world. But we need to know the word and we need to know how to use it skillfully. And I wonder today how many Christians know the Bible, know the word in their hearts and in their minds. What does that look like? If someone were to use the sword, the word of God, in spiritual conflict, what would that look like? The best example would be Jesus, right? In Matthew chapter 4, he's tempted by the devil, right? And Jesus uses the sword masterfully. Satan said to Jesus in 11.4, If you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, here comes the sword. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil, Jesus' enemy, took him up into the holy city, set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, it is written again, here comes the sword, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed Jesus all the kingdoms of of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, here comes the sword. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and was ministered by angels. Every single time Jesus answers his enemy, he quotes scripture. It's, he's quoting the book of Deuteronomy. Jesus knew the word. It was in him. And when he was attacked personally, he knew what to say. He knew what verse to go to, and he knew what to say. He knew how to apply it. Can we do that? Do we do that? Colossians 3, 16, 17 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. The wisdom part is knowing how to apply God's revealed word in any given situation. Being able to call upon a verse when it is necessary for your own particular situation that you may be up against. How do we do that? How are we to get God's word in us? We memorize it. Do you memorize scripture? Get it into your heart and mind. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart by memorizing it. Why? So that I might not sin against you. God's people, if we're going to be victorious in spiritual conflict, in the conflicts that we face in our individual lives, the church must possess the sword, the word of God, and rightly handle it in any given situation. 
If we don't know how to do that, we're going to be in trouble. It makes conquering the enemy in our own spiritual battles much more difficult to overcome. And if the church is not knowledgeable of God's word in times like this, we don't know what to say, and our voices become silent, and we, the sword remains in its sheath, and that's not what it's meant to do. We need to use it with grace, but with truth, and applying it in the situation. This is what these Jews did in the book of Esther. They used the sword that was provided for them, and in the process of doing so, became victorious over the enemy who was at work to destroy them. And we're living in a time when the enemy is at work to assault the church, create an environment when it becomes acceptable, and that's not acceptable. The church needs to use their swords that has been given to us by our Lord. If we do so, we will be victorious even though it may not seem like the curse has been reversed. It has been. These are the two examples that our author gives us. We are in spiritual conflict. The world in which we live in is not a playground. It's a battleground. And Christians need to be armed with God's word and his truth, and we need to be able to assemble because we will be strong when we do so. If the church does this in times of crisis, like God's people did in Esther, we will be victorious. There will be a price to pay, no doubt, but we will be victorious. That concludes our study on the book of Esther. It's been a long nine weeks, but God has revealed a lot to us as a result of this study. God's victory is certain, and no matter what anyone tries to do in the world in which we live, we win. We win because Christ is victorious. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We know, Lord, that we do live in difficult times. And we know, Lord, that the enemy is alive, but not doing well. He's not alive and well. He's alive, but he's not doing well. He's mortally wounded. And he's at work in the world, Lord, and we know that he's going to come after uh, your people because we're in the way. And everything that's at work in the world and everything that he's doing is going to target us as your people. We pray, Lord, that we would be strong in you, in the power of your might. Help us, Lord, not take for granted the opportunity to assemble together as your people. It seems strange to say that today, Lord, because we're doing so in a time of a pandemic. And we can still assemble in the midst of a pandemic. It'll just look differently. We have people outside our church listening to the service in cars. We're grateful that they're here. And help us, Lord, to find ways where we can all be one. But we know it's very important to assemble, to draw strength from one another. This is your will. Your word says it. And Lord, help us to use your word in a skillful way. Help us to rededicate our, our, our hearts and our minds to the study of Scripture. It is something that you did, and you modeled how to use the sword for us against your arch rival, and your enemy is our enemy. So help us to do the same. 
Help us to learn to memorize Scripture so that we can use it in time when we need it, so that we can have victory in you going forward in, a time, in, in this time of crisis. Lord, we thank you for the book of Esther, for the author who is faithful in writing down those words. And we just pray that we will learn those, uh, the lessons that we have learned throughout this book, knowing that we are victorious because you are victorious over sin and death, that you have reversed the curse, and victory is ours. And we give you all the praise and the glory and the honor because you are worthy of it all. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.